0: Chapters twenty three and twenty four of When Shadows Die by e d e n Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter twenty three Too Great a Burden Abel Force went into the little room he had engaged adjoining the sick chamber of his wife. It was no more than a closet and had evidently been used as a dressing room attached to the large chamber "'before the exigencies of war had rendered space in the house "'too valuable for the little place to be used for any purpose but a bedroom. "'It was furnished very simply, with an iron bedstead, "'a washstand with a glass above it, a single chair, "'and half a dozen wooden pegs on the door to hang clothes. "'Mr. Force turned the back of the only chair to the window "'that was opposite the door and overlooked the yard, "'and he sat down and drew the packet he had taken from his wife's room.' and again looked at the superscription. Yes, it was directed in a firm hand to Abel Force, Esquire. It was tied up with cord and sealed with wax. But under the cord a little note had been slipped, and this also was addressed, but in a weak and tremulous hand to Abel Force, Esquire. He opened the note to read it. It was without date, yet he felt sure that it must have been written on that very morning before the sudden fall of the woman had prevented her flight. The note ran as follows. The hour has come when I must drop the mask of deceit and show myself in my true colors, a living lie, a hypocrite, though never, never happy in falsehood and hypocrisy. Your love and trust have wounded and tortured me. The reverence of children has humiliated me. No, never for a moment happy, or at ease in my disguise. It is almost a relief now to throw it off and reveal myself as I am even though the revelation must banish me from your presence and my children's forever in this world, and perhaps in the next. Yet, I repeat, it is a relief to throw off the disguise which has suffocated me like a heavy cloak these many years, and has been more than that, has been like Medea's robe of fire for the last few years since Anglesius' first visit to us. The enclosed packet contains a manuscript that was written at intervals during this time, and with a view to the chance of just such a crisis as has now come. I leave it for you to read. I do not ask you to pardon me, for I know there is no such thing as pardon for me in this world. I do not even ask you to judge charitably of me. Charity is for the sinner, not for the hypocrite. I only ask you to read the story, that you may understand the fiendish hold one human being had upon my body, soul, and spirit my very life here and hereafter, and after having read it, I, who have no right to ask you anything, dare still to ask you this, to ask, to plead, to pray, that you will be kind to one who is the guiltless victim of others' guilt, and to save him if you can. And now, farewell, and, oh, my whole heart goes out in this cry. O God, O God, though I cannot be pardoned, yet, oh, hear my prayer— and save and bless my husband and my children. That was all. Abel Force dropped his head upon his breast and remained in deep thought for a few moments. Then with a heavy sigh he aroused himself, drew a match case from his pocket, lighted a match, set fire to the little note, and held it down upon the stone window sill with the point of his penknife until it was consumed to ashes. Then he went to lock his door to prevent intrusion but he found that he had already taken that precaution. Finally he returned to his chair, cut the cords of the packet, broke the seal, and read as follows. The Story of a Withered Heart You have often heard how lonely, loveless, and neglected was my childhood and youth. You are reminded of these facts now, not an excuse of what followed, but as the causes of the effects that destroyed my life. You know that I was born at Enderby Castle, where the first years of my infancy passed, When I was scarcely four years of age, I lost my mother, too young to understand or to lament my loss. The pageantry of her funeral is one of the strongest impressions among the brain pictures of that time. A few days after that event, my father left Enderby, taking me with him. We went to Weirdwaste, an estate he had acquired through his marriage with my mother, situated on the west coast of Ireland. It was, if possible, even more drear, lonely, and desolate than Enderby Cliff itself. This place, in which I was destined to pass my childhood, was built of grey stone, two stories high, around the four sides of a hollow quadrangle, at the inland end of a long, flat point of land stretching far out into the Atlantic Ocean, which at high tide swept over it, covering more than two-thirds of the ground, and the moan of the sea never ceased from the sorrowful shore north, west, and south around the point of land, nothing but sky and water was to be seen. East, inland, was a wild waste, dotted here and there by the huts of the poorest peasantry on the island, and that means also the poorest people on the earth. The old manor house was shockingly out of repair, but because it was the best building on the estate, it was occupied by my father's land steward, O'Nally, and his wife. These two had been old servants of my mother's family, and had been very much devoted to her. After my father's arrival with me at the house, they also acted in the capacity of butler and housekeeper. My father had brought with him a valet and a groom, and for me, a nurse and a governess. I was very warmly welcomed and fondly caressed by my mother's old servants, and so for the first few days I was very happy at Weird Waste. We had no neighbors but the poor tenantry in the huts, on the waste behind the manor-house, and we saw no company but the vicar of the little Protestant parish, in the village of Bantram, ten miles inland, and the county practitioner from the same place. These two old men remained strong, clear portraits in the gallery of my memory. The vicar, Mr. Clement, was a large, fair, clean-shaved, bald-headed old gentleman, with blue eyes and a beaming smile. He was very, very good to me, and I soon learned to love him. The medical practitioner, Dr. Alexander, was a tall, gaunt, high-nosed, red-faced man, with a shock of iron-gray hair and whiskers, a formidable frown, and a brusque manner. He also was very, very kind to me, but I never got over my fear of him. My father did not intend to remain at Weird Waste, as I soon found out. He had the vicar and the doctor come and spend the day and dine at the house, so they might see the child who was to be left at Weird Waste under their joint care. The doctor pronounced me a wonderfully sound and healthy child, who would grow finely in the pure, invigorating air of the seaside. The doctor promised to look after my health, and the vicar to superintend my education, and both engaged to write frequently, and keep my father advised as to my welfare. So having taken every precaution he thought necessary to my well-being, and having settled the urgent business that brought him to Ireland. My father bade me good-bye, and left weird ways to travel on the continent. And then began the loneliest life ever led by motherless child. O'Nally and his wife were an old couple. They kept two old servants, a woman who did the housework, and a man who did the outdoor work. And they kept an old horse and an old jaunting-car. My nurse was a respectable, elderly matron, my governess, a discreet, middle-aged maiden, "'selected by my father especially for good qualities. "'Surely I had all the care and protection that was needed. "'But I had no love, no play, no amusement, no companions. "'Even the warm-hearted peasant woman, "'who had come down from their huts on the waste "'to welcome their little lady of the manor, "'came no more after that first day. "'Not that they had ceased to care for me, "'but because the occasion of their coming had passed, "'and their hard work kept them all at home.' On fine Sundays O'Nally took me in the jaunting car, with himself and his wife, to church, and we heard Mr. Clement preach, and after the service I sometimes got a pat on the head, and a smile and kind word from the vicar. He was a widower without children, so I never was asked to his house. Once a week the county practitioner rode out to the manor house to see after my health, that he might report to my father. Also, if no one from Weirdwaste happened to go to church on a Sunday, The vicar would ride out to the manor in the course of the week to inquire the cause of absence and report to my father. These occasional drives to church on Sundays and semi occasional visits from the vicar and the doctor were the only variations in the monotony of my days, which were ordinarily passed in this way. At seven o'clock in the morning, Nurse Barnes would wake me up, give me a bath, and dress me in such a plain black frock I had not even the pleasure of pretty clothes and then she would give me my breakfast, such a plain breakfast of oatmeal and milk. I had never the indulgence of cakes or sugar plums, which was all very well for me, no doubt, but which was also very dull. Then came Miss Murray with the school-books, and I would sit alone with her in the schoolroom, trying to study my first reader while she sat reading or sewing, but scarcely ever speaking. Then came the noon-dinner of boiled mutton and potatoes, and after that more school for an hour or two, then a walk on the sands all around the point if the tide was low, or if the tide were high and the cape covered with water, we took a walk on the waste behind the manor house. Sometimes I got a letter from my father enclosed in one to the steward or to my governess. Chapter twenty four A New Mother One Day I received a terrible shock. Child as I was, I felt it severely. It came so suddenly, so unexpectedly, that it felt like a thunderbolt upon me. It was a morning in November when the carrier's cart stopped at the manor house and left a box directed to me, in the care of the steward. When it was opened, it revealed a beautiful cake wrapped in many folds of silver paper. I was delighted, for I had not tasted cake for months. But, oh, I did not taste it even then. The letter that lay on the top of the cake poisoned it. That letter told me that my father had married, and was spending his honeymoon in Paris. I had a stepmother, a being whom I knew not how or why, unless, perhaps, from the idle talk of servants, I had learned to hate as an evil, and to dread as an enemy, though it never occurred to me that my father would give me one, and yet he had married within five months after my mother's death. I could not touch the poisoned cake, I know not what became of it. I cried all that day, and many days after— THE STEWARD AND HIS WIFE, AND THE TWO OLD SERVANTS WHO HAD KNOWN AND LOVED AND SERVED MY MOTHER, ENCOURAGED ME WITH THEIR SYMPATHY AND LAMENTATIONS TO YIELD TO MY GRIEF AND DESPAIR. BUT THE GOVERNESS FROWNED UPON ME, AND LECTURED ME UPON MY DUTY TO MY PARENTS, AS IT WAS HER BUSINESS TO DO, ONLY IT SEEMED TO ME CRUEL IN HER. AS DAYS passed, MY PASSIONATE GRIEF SUBSIDED. MY FATHER DID NOT BRING HIS BRIDE TO weird Waste, WHICH WAS INDEED NO FIT PLACE TO BRING A FINE LADY nor did he send for me to join them wherever they might be. He heard regularly from me through the doctor, the vicar, the steward, or my governess, and he seemed to be content with my condition. So the year passed away. I was thankful to my father for one thing, that he did not bring my stepmother and myself together. This was all wrong, but I did not know it then. I was unconsciously influenced by the sentiments of my own mother's own old servants who were about me, and who, whenever Miss Murray was out of sight, would commiserate with me on the subject of my stepmother, and then rejoice with me on the fact that no future heir to Enderby that might be born of the second marriage, could deprive me of my inheritance to Weirdwaste, which was mine in right of my own mother. Ah me, Enderby Castle and Weirdwaste sounded well enough in the peerage, but in point of fact the united rent roll of both places did not reach over a thousand pounds per annum, and my father, for his rank, was a very poor man. I expected to see my father at Christmas. He wrote to the steward to say that he would come and bring Lady Enderby with him, and that the house must be made as comfortable as possible for her reception, and that the suit of rooms pointing south must be fitted up for her a special use. This letter filled my soul with dismay. I could have looked forward with delight to the visit of my father, had he been coming alone, but I could only dread the meeting with my stepmother— However, both the pleasure and the pain were saved me, for after the servants had got the house ready for the reception of my father and his new wife, there came another letter saying that the delicate health of Lady Enderby obliged him to take her to Italy for the winter, and in place of my father's and stepmother's visit came a box of presents. I was again divided in my feelings, sorry not to see my father, glad not to see my stepmother, the Christmas box was a large and well-filled one, packed with flannels and blankets, and tea and sugar for the old woman in the huts on the waste, and containing another smaller box with cakes, sweetmeats, and sugar plums for me and my small household. I heard the steward remark to his wife that the new countess must be well off, or the earl must have come into money some way, for this was the very first Christmas that he had ever sent anything to the poor on the estate. As the guardian of his daughter, the heiress, He forgave many of them their rent, but he never helped them in any other way. And so at Christmas the old people on the waste were made happy. And now let me add here that as long as I remained at the old manor house, this Christmas dole came every year. After this I heard less of the cruelty of my father in afflicting me with a stepmother. I heard even less of the wickedness of stepmothers in general, and the probable enormity of my stepmother in particular." THE OLD PEOPLE FROM THE WASTE CAME DOWN IN CROWDS TO THE manor HOUSE ON CHRISTMAS DAY, TO THANK ME FOR THE DOLE THAT HAD BEEN SENT TO THEM ON CHRISTMAS EVE. THIS WAS THE ONLY PLEASURE WE HAD. THERE WAS NO MERRY-MAKING, AND THE STATE OF THE ROADS PREVENTED US EVEN FROM GOING TO CHURCH. OH, THE DREARY WINTER THAT FOLLOWED! NO ONE CAME TO THE HOUSE EXCEPT THE VICAR AND THE DOCTOR, WHO MADE WEEKLY CALLS TO REPORT TO MY FATHER. AND WE WENT NOWHERE AT ALL. THAT WAS MY FIRST WINTER AT WEIRD WASTE. And here, let me add, that all succeeding winters were like that. I had no companions, no amusements, no occupations except my schoolbooks and my piano. I had not even a pet bird or cat or dog. The steward and his wife were good to me, but they were engaged in their affairs. Miss Murray was faithful, but when she was not hearing my lessons, or guiding my fingers over the keys of the piano, she was busied in reading. I never knew anybody to read so much as she did, she had no other recreation— When the spring returned, we began to take walks on the sand again when the tide was out, and we drove to church on Sundays when the state of the roads permitted us. On the first of August, we received news from my father. He was at Underby Castle, to which he had taken my stepmother for a temporary sojourn. He wrote to the steward to tell him that an heir had been born to Underby, and he wrote to me to say that my new mother had given me a dear little brother, and that he hoped I would love them both very much." I was not quite four years old when my own dear mother died. I was but a few weeks past five now when I was told that I had a little brother by my father's new wife, and that I must love both. I could not do it. You will see what a sensitive and badly trained child I was when I tell you that I fell into hysterical sobs and tears and refused to be comforted. It seemed to me that I had quite lost my father, that he had been taken away from me by the new woman and the new child. I remember crying aloud to my own mother in heaven to come and take me away, because no one cared for me on earth. Miss Murray coaxed, lectured, remonstrated, all in vain. I would not hear reason, or receive consolation. The two O'Nallies, and the two old servants, sympathized with me, and petted me, and cried over me. They never said a word against my father or my stepmother, personally or in my presence but I often overheard them saying it was a burning shame to neglect a child as I was neglected, that I ought to be with my father and stepmother wherever they were, etc., etc., and their words deepened in me the sense of injury I felt. And yet, in justice to my father and his wife, I must say that no wrong was intended to me. We were all the victims of circumstances, as you will judge as I go on." It was on this occasion that I wrote my first letter to my father, with much help from my governess. As soon as I had got over my paroxysms of grief, which did not happen for days, Miss Murray insisted that I should answer my father's letter and wish him joy of his heir, and send my love to my new mother and little brother. This I most positively refused to do, declaring with a new burst of tears that I did not wish him any joy in his son, that I did not love my new brother, and that I had no new mother. I had but one mother who was in heaven, and I should never have another. My governess insisted, and tried to intimidate me into compliance. Whereupon I told her that she should not wish to make me write falsehoods, and that for my part I was quite ready to be burned at the stake, like Bishop Bonner, for the truth's sake, rather than write what I did not feel and what was not true. You see from this what a morbid, sensitive, extravagant little soul I was even at that tender age." and what exaggerated views I took of every trial. My governess had to yield the point. How could she even wish her pupil to write falsely? We compromised the matter by my consenting to write a short note to my father, telling him that I was glad to hear that he was well, and asking him when he would come to see me. A week later, I got a most affectionate letter from my father, saying that he would visit his dear little daughter as soon as he thought it would be safe to leave his wife, who had lain in a low condition ever since the arrival of her babe. But my father did not come. It was, in fact, October before the Countess was able to leave her room. Then the physicians ordered her to the south of France, whither my father soon took her with her infant son. Another dreary winter followed me at Weird Waste, the same confinement to the house without companions or amusements or occupations, except my elderly attendants and my schoolbooks and music No visitors except the vicar and the doctor, no visits except church on exceptional Sundays when the roads were passable. I grew into a very strange child, precocious in a certain sort of intelligence gained from books, but backward in all knowledge of child life, and depressed in spirits. I received occasional letters from my father, and wrote others, touched up by my governess. End of chapter twenty-four